0: Hi everyone, I'm Adriana and this is Survivor Sisters. Survivor Sisters is a podcast that shares the stories of sexual assault survivors to educate, empower, and inspire other survivors and their peers to take action against sexual assault. For today's episode, I am sitting down with Morgan, who has offered to come on and share her experiences of sexual assault and how she made the decision to become a SANE nurse. For those who do not know, a SANE nurse is a sexual assault nurse examiner who is tasked with performing the exam and collecting the rape kit for survivors who decide to seek medical attention. Thank you, Morgan, so much for being here. So, Morgan, tell me a little bit about your story, where it began, and anything that you feel comfortable sharing.
1: So, like I mentioned to you, I'm actually a double survivor. So, the first attack, I actually had to go back and look at some of my journals because I was having a hard time remembering, which... As we know, as part of the dissociative and the healing process. The first attack actually happened. I'm looking back, in, it was 2014, which feels like a really long time ago, but really is not that long ago, I suppose. And so that was the first attack. And then that kind of just started this spiral of me looking for bad relationships where I could potentially fix that person. And that was just a really unhealthy coping mechanism that I kind of fell into. And that led me to meet my next partner. I found that he was an alcoholic and I kind of ignored that. And again, I thought I could fix him. And from then on out, our relationship got much more abusive physically, mentally, emotionally. And then finally, actually the last night that we were a couple per se, he did sexually assault me and physically was violent towards me. That's what led me to actually leave that relationship. So that's kind of where it all started. I'd be happy to share more if you have questions. Yeah, I mean, I'm very sorry to hear what you've been
0: through. It's definitely not easy, especially because you were in a relationship with that person.
1: How long were you guys together? We had been together for close to two years, and I knew that I was going to leave that relationship. I just didn't really have a way out at the time, and... I didn't feel that it was safe. Mm. He was also a person who had attempted suicide twice before and was using that as a threat to kind of keep me in the relationship. So I certainly didn't want to feel like I was responsible for that. But when I finally did hit that kind of, I, I can't take this anymore. Like you've broken my ribs. You've done everything you can possibly do to me. You've given me a concussion. I can't stay here anymore is the final straw. That is when I left. And unfortunately, he did end up committing suicide a year later. So he is no longer alive, which is a little bit of a relief, as terrible as that sounds. I didn't want to feel that responsibility to him.
0: Of course. I feel like a lot of survivors of domestic violence do feel that responsibility, especially when someone is threatening suicide over you leaving. You have a good heart. You're a good person. And you obviously would never want someone to commit suicide and To blame it on you when you're in that situation, when you're already going through so much, that's just too much for anyone to deal with. So, I mean, you stayed because you felt like you had to. And that's, you're right, you didn't do anything wrong. You left when you were ready to leave, when it was the safest point for you to leave. I understand what you're saying about feeling relief that they're gone. As hard as it is, you know, he was fighting his own demons. And I think you've probably learned now that it had nothing to do with you.
1: Yeah, for sure. That was definitely a challenge. But the person that assaulted me in 2014 was actually the person that I was dating's roommate. And that was somebody that they they just met on the internet. And I'd always kind of been a little reserved about that. I wasn't living with my partner at the time, but I spent a lot of time there. I I was 19 years old at that time. So I didn't really know any better either. But that just became another situation where I felt like I couldn't get out. He was doing drugs. He was always intoxicated, bringing random people into our house. And one day he just decided that I was the only girl in the house. And he thought that he could do whatever he wanted. And he assaulted me in front of three other people and they watched. And that was probably the most disheartening thing was to look across the room and see three other people know exactly what was happening. Very clearly could hear me say, stop. I don't want to do this. I'm not attracted to you. I'm dating someone in this house And for them to just turn around, that was very disheartening. And from that, again, I moved into this spiral of just meeting really unfortunate people that I thought I could fix because I realized that there was this part of myself that I hadn't fixed and I didn't think I was ready to fix it. So for me, my coping mechanism was trying to fix other people, which is not great, as we know. And then I, unfortunately, at the time was not brave enough to go get an exam or press charges on either of these people. I had a really negative experience with law enforcement both times. The first attacker actually left the scene with his vehicle and his license and never came back to the house. So they were never able to track him down. I did find out later that he had entered several bathroom bars and assaulted other women through a friend of mine who happened to know this person. So that was extremely, extremely sad for me to realize that I probably wanted and should have done more, but I just didn't have the tools in my toolkit at that point, sadly. And then my second partner, who is now deceased, my parents knew that he was an alcoholic. They didn't want me around him. They hated it. They tried to get me to leave, and I was just a defiant 20-something at that time. So I said, no, I'm okay. It's fine. We're all fine. But that was another huge struggle for me was my parents, just the generation that they grew up in and the families that they came from, they actually don't really believe in mental health and they don't really understand kind of the survivor aspect of anything that I've been through. I've never been supported by them. They still don't believe everything that I've ever told them. And I didn't even tell them until probably two years ago. When I did tell them, the first reaction I got was, well, I'm sorry, but there's nothing I can do for you now. So that was very frustrating. That's probably the hardest part still for me is just trying to convince my parents, the people who love me and, you know, are supposed to be there for me that that this is a real thing that happens. And to tell me that I don't believe you, or you shouldn't have put yourself in that situation, or I'm sorry that you have anxiety, you'll grow out of it. PTSD is not real. Like That's just something that war veterans have. That's really frustrating, especially as a medical provider myself.
0: I'm really sorry for that. After everything you've been through, you're looking for that supportive system. And I haven't had that experience. My parents have been very supportive. But I have grandparents who either don't know or they don't understand it. Mm -hmm. And they've said like the wrong thing at the wrong times. But I'm sure that that's not easy for you in your healing journey because you're looking for that support. I'm sorry that you've had that negative experience. I'm hoping for you
1: that. I'm yeah, I'm I'm hoping that through some more education and just having that conversation with them. That's the hardest part is I'm in a very different place of my healing from when I was telling them about it. I should also pray tell you, I didn't even go to therapy until maybe three years ago, two years ago. I probably had my own preconceived notions of like therapy's not for me. I'm not gonna go sit and tell somebody about my life problems. Like they don't want to hear about that kind of thing. But my therapy journey was actually really great. I had a male therapist, which at first like kind of scared me because <laughs> I was like, I don't think I want to share these really intimate details with this man that I have no idea who he is. But that actually turned out to be one of the best things I ever did. He was amazing. And he really kind of got me back into the not all men are bad. You can trust me. And talking to a male about the things that another male had done was very helpful to me. But really the part that got me was talking about mostly my mom. When he said, you know, have you told your parents, You know, what does that look like for you? That was the first and only time I cried in therapy. And my therapist was like, you know, I feel like you're a very challenging person because you are very self-aware and you know what you're feeling and you've had a lot of time to process it. So you're very dissociated. You're very numb to the entire thing. And you can talk to me like you're talking to a brick wall But it was when we started talking about my mom that I really started to realize that that is where I needed to heal because I didn't have that support. I didn't have that love from her, at least. And she is the person I looked up to the most as a child. And so he said, you know, maybe we should try having you write a letter to her and start there and just tell her. And really my therapy kind of evolved from talking about my story and the events that happened to dealing with her and dealing with my relationship with my parents because of it. So that was something that was very, very interesting. And I didn't expect my therapy to kind of go that way, but that is kind of where we ended up. And ever since then, I've just been trying to teach them about mental health and about the things that survivors go through. And I understand if they've never been through it, they're not going to know. And that's okay but just kind of keeping on, keeping on teaching them. And maybe one day they will realize that this is a real thing. Of
0: course. Yeah. You know, you went to therapy for something and you found out something else that needed to be worked on. And I think especially with survivors of trauma, that's definitely the case. The trauma affects so many different aspects of our lives. You said you kept finding yourself in those abusive relationships or with people who are not good people. I have a similar experience where all throughout college, I would go to the people who were not giving me attention, who were treating me poorly. And although they've never done anything to me of that extent, they did manipulate me. They did emotionally abuse me. And I was justifying it saying like, I've been through so much worse. This is nothing compared to what I've been through. Mm -hmm. And I've been in therapy for about seven years now. It took me a really long time to come to terms with the fact that even if someone's saying they love me and, you know, they care about me, they can still be abusive. And I need to be more self-aware of what that looks like and hold to my boundaries because there are people out there who will treat me better and never abuse me.
1: Yeah. Being hyper aware, being really good at setting boundaries. It's a little bit that way with my family. Even if we go out to family dinner and one of them starts a conversation about my mental health or stepping over one of those boundaries and being very critical of me and some life decisions or whatever is going on. I now have the confidence and the ability to say, I'm not going to deal with this today. You know, if you want to have an adult conversation with me and treat me respectfully, then we can have dinner until then I'm bleeding. And thankfully, I do have a husband that is very receptive to that. And he's a physician. Mm -hmm. So he understands a lot of what's going on with my family and how they don't perceive what I'm going through as real. And so he, on multiple occasions, has stepped in and said, you know, stop talking to her that way. She is an adult. She is having anxiety. You need to let up. And that has been so validating because I've never had somebody stand up for me in that way. And it took me a long time to learn to stand up for my own self. At the end of the day, it is about you. And as long as my partner is supportive of that and willing to go along with that, then I feel very lucky.
0: I'm really happy that you found someone who is able to stick up for you and able to give you that safe space that you deserve. People don't really notice, unless they've been through it, that it affects so many different areas of your life. It affected my schooling. It semi-affected my relationships with my parents. With my first assault in college, I shot my mom out completely. I couldn't even tell her. Mm -hmm. my relationship with alcohol yeah or like partying i would want to go out all the time to kind of escape that reality and i would put myself in situations with my abusers again i'd go to their frat parties or i'd even sleep on the floor of my abuser's room just Mm -hmm. to like tell myself that i'm safe look at me i'm in the room with him and he's not going to touch me again so it's a lot and i'm always an advocate for therapy because just talking through everything With someone, you can get to the bottom of so many deep-rooted issues that you're dealing with, and when you become more aware of those issues, you can do so much more to change them.
1: My parents would actually take therapy and use it as blackmail against me. And they would make fun of me in public. And they would say, well, you know, you're in therapy. Like, do you talk about us in therapy? Like, of course you do, because we were just the worst parents in the world. Or they would just make these very left-sided comments of, well, you should probably talk to your therapist about that. And it became this negative thing for me. And I didn't want it to become that. So I took a little break to kind of get away from everybody in my life telling me their opinion about therapy. And so I'm probably going to go back. But I did realize that when I started therapy, I probably should have started it well before I had ever been assaulted because I realize now that my family relationship is probably what caused a lot of those unhealthy desires in a relationship. My dad traveled a lot for work. So I was really just with my mom most of the time. Mm -hmm. And she has a very narcissistic personality. She's very much a gaslighter. Mm -hmm. She will say, well, did you take out the trash? No, you told me not to. No, that's not what I said. You clearly have a problem where you are disrespecting me. And so I grew up in this childhood where I was very, very criticized I always had the bar set well beyond something I could ever achieve. And I was just not the golden child, but I was an only child. (laughs) So I I should have been the golden child apparently, but I was not. And I think that that's where I started seeking the validation from other people when I was in college. And that led me down a very, very dangerous path of, of a lot of people I should not have been hanging out with for sure. And I felt a little bad because when I got into these situations, I realized this is what my mom told me. Like she said that I would end up doing stuff like this. She will say, I told you so, or I was right and you were wrong. And so then it was just this big, deep spiral of, well, now I've disappointed her and I'm going to disappoint my dad and I've disappointed myself and all of my friends are disappointed. And I feel like my therapist, is going to be disappointed. My future husband will be disappointed. Thankfully, my now husband is not disappointed and he's a great advocate and a great supporter. But what I realized I wanted to do out of all of this was actually be a sexual assault nurse examiner. And that was something I was compelled to do even before I finished nursing school and before this second assault occurred. This first assault actually happened when I was in nursing school, and it was the only semester of nursing school I ever got a C in. Clearly had a little bit going on in my life. <laughs> I'm still not proud of that. I really didn't want to see in nursing school. I had never gotten a C in any class. I was a 4.0 student for most of my life, so I disappointed myself academically. But we had a SANE nurse actually come speak to one of our classes, and I said, wow, that's really awesome. Like That's something that I think I would want to do. Right now, I'm not in the place to do that. And I would probably be very triggered by that. But in 10 years, maybe I could do that. And um, I kind of put it on the back burner for a while. And I finished my nursing degree. I went through this other horrible relationship. And then a series of other, you know, relationships after that. Got some bedside nursing jobs, met my now husband, and then COVID hit. Yeah. So it's just kind of a lot happening all at once. I didn't have a lot of tools to be able to go get my state license at the time. In my state, it is actually a license. It's not a certification. So I have to keep it up with my board of nursing. I have to do the continuing education hours for it. It's a lot of work to do. It's a 40-hour course. I actually did it in another city because my city doesn't offer it. They've lost their licensure to people to offer the course, sadly. But then we did about 100 hours of in-person contact hours. So doing a vaginal exam, using a speculum, all those kind of things that you have to go through during an exam. And like I said, I was not somebody who was brave enough to do that. And I figured because one of them was my partner, I didn't need to do that, which was very naive of me at the time, but neither here nor there. So I got my SANE credentialing in May of 2022, and I have been working with a really great group of SANE nurses. There are 12 of us, and we keep our hotline open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. So we are very busy and we serve currently nine counties. And we're hoping to expand up to 20. We have a mobile unit that we're building out of an RV. Currently, it has a full exam table. It has all of our medications, all of our exam equipment, state-of-the-art cortex flow camera with the ability to annotate on it. Like It is very, very nice setup, but there are some insurance things going on with that. So we are hopeful to have that going out in the next year. And that would open us up to about 10 more counties. Mm -hmm. So that is something I've loved doing. And it's probably the most fulfilled I've ever felt as a nurse.
0: That's literally amazing. I can't even think of like doing that. I'm sure like it comes with the triggers here and there.
1: Absolutely. I had a patient not too long ago. She was much the same that I was. She felt that she couldn't leave and she was just trying to make someone happy. And he was just torturing this girl. And that was the first time that I really was like, I need to just step out of the room for a second, which Mm. is hard when you're doing a SANE exam because you can't step out of the room because of all the evidence, you are the first link in the chain of custody. So you can't leave the room. There are a lot of survivors that go on to do SANE work, which is amazing. And that's just a great testament to the healing that a lot of us put in and that we really work towards because this is a very triggering job. If you're not at a point where you are very okay with what happened to you and you're very at peace and balanced with it, it's not a job for you. But they tell you not to share your story. Don't take away from their story. But what I have always found to be very helpful and what I found helpful with this girl was, you know, she said, I I just feel so alone and I don't know what to do next. And just in that moment, I could tell she needed someone to say, I know what you're going through. And some people don't need that. And that's very fine line that you kind of have to discern sometimes. And I just looked at her and I said, you know, survivor X, I won't use your name obviously, but you know, I know what you're going through. And she said, really? And I said, yes. I said, I was not brave enough to do what you're doing today. And I'm proud of you. And she just let loose and she cried for the first time. And she said, you know, that's what I needed to hear. Can I give you a hug? (laughs) And I said, yes, you can absolutely give me a hug. And so I hugged her. I probably was crying a little at that point. And I said, you know, let's get this exam knocked out. And then we're going to talk to the police officer and we're going to get you out of here. And that was the first time as a nurse. And I have been a nurse for almost five years now. So Mm -hmm. that was the first time I was like, wow, I'm really doing something for somebody. And they don't feel they can do it without me. And that's a huge responsibility that I don't take very lightly. Those experiences are so actually healing for me because I didn't do that. I couldn't do that. I wasn't brave enough. I wasn't in a time in my life where I could say, yeah, I'm going to do that. But now seeing other people do it, it's just like, I feel a little piece of my heart come back every single time. And that is so helpful. Just going home and saying, I did something for someone else today that I couldn't do and they feel better because of me. So it's been the most gratifying thing I've ever done. And thankfully we don't get called out all that often, which is great. That means not everyone in the world is getting assaulted. So yay <laughs> for that. Um, well, you know, that's everyone's great...
0: getting assaulted. That's that is comforting. Yes.
1: That's done. getting an exam. As we know, that is still something that we are working on as a nation and something we are working on with law enforcement. I know in my state, we're about two years backed up on crime kits. And that's usually the prohibiting factor for most people is, so no one's going to do anything with this for years? Well, potentially not. And a lot of people just don't want to wait around a few years and then have to relive all of this and go back to talking to law enforcement and lawyers. And I mean, I wouldn't want to do that personally. So I, I know what why it's prohibitive, but that's something we need to be better about as a nation.
0: Definitely. So it's two years for your kids to even be processed?
1: In our state, yeah. We're just backed up. That far, I know other places like California. A lot of the West Coast is up to four, five, six years.
0: My goodness! I mean, I didn't even know the process. After my first assault in college, I was taken to the hospital, and I met with the same nurse, and she did everything. I was just feeling like very triggered and not safe, not feeling great. Mm-hmm. My sister with me and actually I couldn't even talk to them. I had my sister explain like what was going on. and it was when the same nurse came in that I was able to talk and I think it made me just feel a lot better because you know she was trained to deal with cases like this. And what was a really good moment for me is like her like asking my permission for everything that she was going to do. Kind of reinstating that, like, my consent matters, like, even though it was taken away from me in that moment. And you have a choice here of, you know, what you're willing to give. And I think because of that, like, I went through the whole exam.
1: Absolutely. That is something that I was actually really worried about when I went into my scene licensing class. As a survivor, you have one perspective of it, I think. And then as a medical professional, you have a very different perspective. But when you try to bring them together, I was really worried that a lot of my personal feelings were going to get kind of waylaid into it. And I wasn't going to be able to be professional about it, if that makes sense. But a great thing about the licensing class is you have to learn proper question asking and trauma-informed care. We are really asking for your consent. And we want this to be about you as the survivor. We're literally there just to do what you tell us. We're at your mercy is kind of the way I look at it. I had an older woman who was assaulted, actually, and she was a little bit like me in that she was not processing it in an emotional way. And she was just very numb and like didn't want to talk a lot, but wanted the exam. It was a very confusing kind of exam for me to perform, I'll say. But that was the first time I really got to go in and say, like, this is about you. I want you to do everything you're comfortable with, and I don't want you to do anything you're not comfortable with. And because she was so quiet, it was very hard for me to kind of discern whether she was consenting to this part of the exam or whether she wanted to give a detailed account of what happened. And so something that I, I found that was really helpful was explaining each step. Because a lot of times when you're in that survival fight or flight mode, you're not processing everything that someone is saying to you, right? I mean, you're just hearing swab and taking my clothes and blood, like blood stick, you know, urine test. Like those are the big things that you're hearing. And for a lot of people, those are scary on a normal day, much less when you are in a situation where you've been violated and you feel unsafe. So walking someone through each of those steps in a very detailed way and saying, you know, we do have to take your clothes if you're still wearing them, but I brought you Some clothes that I think will fit you. Would you like to look at them and go through them before you make a decision? And most of the time, they say, "Oh, you you did that for me." Yes, of course. I don't want to send you back out on the street with no clothes. Like, so it's just being very hand holding and being able to say, "I have to do a vaginal exam, but there are several ways we can do that. We can use a speculum, and I can do it. If you're not comfortable with that, I can let you swab yourself. I just have to watch you do it, or." I can just do a blind swab and there won't be any pressure or instruments other than this little tiny Q-tip. Is that something that you would want to do? And again, just asking that permission and saying, do you want to do this step? And most of the time I feel when I explain those things and offer encouragement and say, here's what it can help us do. Most survivors say, yeah, okay, I can do that. Like I can do that one time. It's 30 seconds. I can do that. And I feel putting a time frame on it. Most people I think are most nervous about the speculum exam, which in reality is actually the shortest part of the exam that we do. And I think a lot of people don't know that that takes about 30 seconds, if not a little less, depending on how quick you are with your hands. So I always tell people that's, that's the fastest part. And I promise you it will be over before you can even say your own name. Mm-hmm. And most of the time they say, really, it's that fast. Like when I go to my doctor, it takes forever we're not here to make you uncomfortable. I can get it in swab and done about 30 seconds. And most of the time they do tell me at the end, like that was honestly the easiest part. For the hardest part, it's usually people that don't like lab draws and they don't want to have their blood taken. Or a lot of people say the hardest part is retelling the story, especially in front of an officer and a nurse and potentially a doctor and the same nurse. But that's really the beauty of SANE work is I know not every hospital is fortunate enough to have a SANE nurse that they can call. A lot of states don't have enough SANE nurses to cover all of the hospital systems or all of the counties in their state. I know the county I personally live in, we have three SANE nurses for our entire county, and they are charged with covering 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, which clearly they can't do. There are three of them. And the ER that I used to work at, we would have to call for them all the time. And I would say maybe 75% of the time we didn't get a SANE. And then it fell on us as nurses to try to do that exam. And that was always really scary because Mm -hmm. we weren't trained to do it. We didn't know the right things to say. And I certainly would never want to re-traumatize somebody. And so a lot of the times I would have to step out and say, I'm not comfortable doing that. I know that I'm licensed to, but I don't want to re-traumatize somebody and I'm not the person for the job. And something else that's very prohibitive about that is any physician can perform a SANE exam. Most of them, if you ask them to, will say, that's not in my scope of practice. I don't know how to do that, which is not true. (laughs) They are taught all of the mechanisms and the ways to do the exams in medical school. They just don't get the formal training on it. So if a physician ever denies a patient a SANE exam, that's actually illegal. They cannot. They will try to punt it off to a nurse or somebody else usually, but it is totally legal for them to do it and is illegal for them to deny. So that's something that I think is really important because a lot of survivors don't know that. And the doctor is usually the one that you speak to first. So if you say, I'm consenting to an exam and they say, well, I'm not going to do that. I don't know how to do that. That is illegal. And you can advocate for yourself or you can have your SART advocate who has hopefully gotten to the hospital with you as a survivor do that for you on your behalf.
0: I mean, I'm wondering, out of my own curiosity, I just feel like everyone should be trained on it. I agree. Even if they don't have the license for the same, they should still be trained how to do it and just how to be, you know, empathetic and do trauma-informed care.
1: Absolutely. I know in nursing school, trauma-informed care is absolutely taught usually during like your psych rotation. Or if you have like an emergency room elective, a lot of times they will teach it there, but the same exam is just so detailed that I think a lot of schools and a lot of other places just don't want to take the time to do it. It is also a lengthy process. It can take several hours to do a full exam. And if you're getting really good evidence and getting a really good story, it can take between four and five hours. Mine was
0: about five hours.
1: Yeah. My average one takes about four usually. And that's with taking the pictures, doing all of the swabs, getting all of your labs drawn, getting the story. Because a lot of times what I find is people go back and while they're sitting there, they remember something else. So then it's, I have a swab in my left hand, but I got to write down what you're saying with my right hand kind of thing. So it can be a lengthy process, but I agree. I'm hoping to advocate a little bit more for at least in our area is having all of the ER nurses trained to do a SANE exam, whether they get the licensure or not. It is also expensive to get your license. I will say that it's about $500 to do it. And if the hospital want, won't pay for it, nurses just don't want to pay out of pocket for it. So that makes sense. We have a medical school in my area. I'm hoping to actually go teach some of the students and the residents how to do a basic SANE exam so that when they step out into the world and become a, a, a real doctor, if you will, that they're not one of the people that is contributing to the, well, I don't know how to do that. So I'm sorry, I'm not going to do it for you because that's something that we've had a real challenge with.
0: Yeah, definitely. You just sharing with me brings up so much I didn't know, so much knowledge that brings me back to my story. And I just think the work that you're doing is amazing. It makes me have faith. (laughs) With my experience, the same nurse was great. But then I went back to the hospital a year and a half later asking, where is my rape kit? No one told me where it would be. And they're like, we don't know what you're talking about. And I go, what do you mean you don't know where I'm talking about? I need to find the nurse. Like, maybe I want to prosecute. Yeah, that's frustrating. Yeah, or like I'd go back to the police station and they say they lost my report. And I'm like, what do you mean you lost my report? You were there at the hospital with me.
1: That's really disheartening because we at our organization, we have a system and there is a statute of limitations that's different for every state. But there are some differences. So in my state, I know if you don't want to prosecute the day of your exam, we as the same nurses are your chain of custody right there. So we take our kits back to our facility and we have a locked storage room where they sit for a year. And that's part of our consent process is we have to tell our patients and our survivors that your kit will live in our room for one year. At one year, if you decide not to do anything with it, it goes to medical waste and is destroyed. And they have to sign a consent form saying they know that. And that's that's great and well Good, what the issue becomes is if they decide to report that day or even a few days, a week, months later, because that chain of custody then goes to law enforcement. So mm-hmm. at that point, law enforcement does take over that kit, it goes to their storage facility, and then usually on to a state crime lab. And the crime labs, like I was telling you, are so backed up that we just don't know how how fast they're getting processed.
0: Yeah. And
1: I think sadly police officers and law enforcement don't love prosecuting sexual assault cases they're very hard to prosecute which is sad they should not be hard to prosecute but those actually kind of get looked at as a bad outcome for police officers if they don't get prosecuted so a lot of times those reports do go missing or information gets lost and oh suddenly we can't help you anymore and that is very frustrating because especially for us saints, like we've put in the time and we want to help you and There's just nothing more we can do at that point. That's something I think that we need to focus on moving forward, just as survivors and advocates and sane nurses, is being more helpful and more educational for our law enforcement, because that's kind of where the disconnect has become. I had really bad experiences with police both times. The first time I did have a female officer, and she was great, but she was like, well, without a license or without, you know, a license plate, I can't really do anything. I, I don't know what you want me to do. Mm-hmm. I said, well, take my report and like start a case. And if he comes back, I will call you or I'll get a picture of his license plate. And she basically said, well, you didn't do an exam and he wore a condom. So I don't really have any evidence. So there's kind of nothing else I can do for you. Yeah. And so at that point, you know, at 19 years old, I didn't have the knowledge, and you know, the experience to say, well, that's not true. There are other things that I can do so i just let it go and then the second time i had been assaulted by my partner and he did not wear protection and he was he had been drinking but because he's an alcoholic he was very manipulative and had learned to kind of take the story and twist it to the things that he needed and wanted he strangled me until i passed out and that was terrifying <laughs> to say the least and i am very lucky that he was drunk because he got distracted And let go. Had he continued, I would have died. And the police officer did tell me that later on. He said if he had just held on for another 10, 15 seconds, you probably would have died. But when he was doing that, I try not to like repeat things that people have said to me during an assault because that is usually very triggering for me. But this is something that I will never forget. And it's something that sticks with me and just I feel needs to be said because it is, it helps me heal when I do say it. Mm -hmm. Is he said, you told me that you've been raped before, bitch. I'll show you what being raped looks like. Wow. And that was the moment that I I probably have never been more scared in my life. And from there, he assaulted me. He strangled me. He pulled me off of his bed by my foot. And so I smacked my head on a hardwood floor, gave myself a concussion. And then he kicked me with a steel toe Timberland boot and broke two of my ribs. Mm-hmm. And I thankfully was able to call a friend who I knew lived nearby who was a man and who I knew would be physically strong enough to restrain this person if I needed that while trying to escape. He unfortunately couldn't get the door unlocked when he got there. So Mm. while my attacker was drinking and distracted and throwing things around the apartment, I was able to get out. We did have a mutual cat together at the time and I was actually more focused on getting the cat. I was like, I just need to take my cat with me. I I love this cat. He's just watched all of this happen. Like he's going to be traumatized. Don't mind me. I almost just died, but I need my cat. I couldn't get to him. And my attacker actually pushed me over top of a coffee table. And so I banged my shin up against that table and kind of just fell over into the fetal position and got out the door and said, I'm leaving. Like, just don't touch me. I'm leaving. I I will not come back. I, I, I couldn't tell you to this day why he was mad. I couldn't tell you why he decided to drink more than he normally did that night. I don't know if it was me or anything else. I couldn't tell you why. But we called police from my friend's car. And I will never forget we met in a Walgreens parking lot because I didn't have anywhere else to go at the time. And I didn't want to be in a dark place. I didn't want to be in my apartment alone. I didn't want to be just anywhere by myself so I, I won't forget, I made my friend park under a street light in the Walgreens parking lot because it was well lit. I could see all around me. It was on a major road. And the officer came up to me and he was like, so why, why am I here? I was like, well, I was just sexually assaulted and physically assaulted. Like, can't you see that? And he looked at me and he was like, I don't see any signs of anything. You just look really upset. Like, it looks like you had a fight with your boyfriend. I said, well, I did. <laughs> but He's been drinking and he kicked me and he strangled me and he sexually assaulted me. And he said, Well, I don't see any evidence of that. Like, do you have any like bruising or cuts or anything? And I had like a tiny little red mark on my shin from where I'd hit that coffee table. This was maybe 10 minutes later. This was not that long after. So I didn't have any like physical signs yet. Yeah. And I said, You know, this just happened. Like, I'm in nursing school. I know enough to tell you that like, there's not going to be any bruising yet, or I'm not going to have any true concussive signs yet. And he was like, well, there's really not much I can do until I have physical evidence. He said, I can go talk to him and tell him that he needs to stay away from you. I said, well, please do that. Like do something. And he went to my attacker's apartment and said, Hey, what's going on? Your girlfriend just said that you were, you know, being kind of, you know, not nice to her and that you might've hit her. And, Unfortunately, my attacker, like I said, was very manipulative and had been an alcoholic for well over 10 years. So he kind of knew how to play the system. This was not his first talk with law enforcement. He had actually taken some glass that he had broken and shredded up his arms. I don't know whether that was an attempt at suicidal behavior or manipulation or I don't know what, but he actually told police that I did it to him, which still would have been self-defense in my eyes, even if I had done that to him. And my attacker was believed by law enforcement. He said, wow, it looks like she did a really big number on you. I need to go talk to her. Do you want to press charges? And he said, well, no, you know, I'm not going to do that to her. So I was the one that was going to go to jail because of this. And so So at that point, I said, it's just easier for me to walk away. Like, I don't want to talk to you anymore. I don't want anything to do with law enforcement anymore. I'm not going to be the one that goes to jail for this. Like, I'm not going to do that to myself. So he gave me a business card and he said, if something shows up on your body, send me a picture. The next morning, I did have a very large grapefruit-sized bruise on my ribs. I still have the pictures in my phone today. And I sent him a picture and I got a response that says... Well, we know you both were drinking. It looks like you fell down the stairs. And I said, I'm going to correct you. I was not drinking. You did not offer me a breathalyzer test. So you have no idea whether I was drinking. I was stone cold sober. You didn't breathalyze my attacker who you noted you could smell alcohol on. And you are not believing a survivor. That is not from falling down a set of stairs. I'm a nurse. I said, that is not the like bruising pattern. That is not even remotely related to what you're telling me my story lines up and you're choosing not to believe me. And he said, I just have to do what the picture looks like. And that looks like you drunkenly fell to me. So I said, well, thank you very much for your not so helpful help. And I'm going to let it go because there's nothing else I can do. And I don't, I don't want to be part of this anymore. And I, I wish that I had pursued more, but I didn't. And that's okay. I'm at a point now where I know that it's okay, but that was very frustrating. And so having had really bad experiences with law enforcement, it just makes me so frustrated for other survivors because I know exactly what you're going through. And I wish more than anything that we had a system that believed us.
0: That police officer is like so wrong on like so many levels. Mm -hmm. Angry because I work in domestic violence so yes your ex-partner mutilated himself up and it shows that you know he has something on him which is caused to get a restraining order but so did you for them to be like oh you fell down the stairs no they can't say that they have to take your statement of what happened and why you have that bruise mm-hmm. not their job to be like no you fell down the stairs no yeah. now yeah. that you have an actual physical sign on your body you're entitled to that restraining order you're entitled to press the charges.
1: Yeah. And something else I learned from my same course actually was in my state until two years ago, we actually didn't even have a separate statute for strangulation. And we didn't have a separate statute for partner violence. It was still all just considered like domestic violence. Mm-hmm. And because I wasn't living with this person and I wasn't married to this person, and I didn't have kids with this person. They weren't going to prosecute as domestic violence or strangulation because we didn't have a statute for it, which is shocking to me. That was the biggest thing that I was like, what? I didn't know that. Nobody checked me for signs of strangulation. Nobody looked in my mouth. They didn't look in my eyes for petechiae. Like they didn't do anything. And I remember my voice was different. And the person that picked me up even said like, are you okay? Like, are you sick? You sound like you have a sore throat. And I said, no, like he strangled me. Like I was... Passed out. Like I have no idea how long I was out for. I said, "I I think it's just because like he grabbed my throat and it hurts." And he said, "Oh wow." He said, "Like you sound really terrible." And so I had signs. They were just ignored. Yeah, I mean, I know strangulation has become like a new thing
0: in terms of domestic violence, but even still, it's just terrible to hear how behind parts of our country, if not all of our country, really is. On all these crimes, I hear your experience, and I'm I'm in domestic violence. I'm like I wish, I
1: wish she came to me so I could help her I get know. that. Water. I know, like, I know, and sadly, I live in a state where you know we are a very rural state. So I, I know that we are behind as a state for sure because we do have a lot of still very rural areas in Kentucky with no healthcare access, no you know education, and our law enforcement is is very much the same way. A lot of our advocates. Work is still very behind. Currently, our mayor is a nurse. So that's really great. I've, I've gotten to meet with her and, and talk to her about, you know, sexual violence and domestic violence and how we can, you know, better our services and better our country and our state. That's something she's very passionate about, which is great. Just change takes a long time, sadly, and it's just not something that's really a concern for a lot of people in our state. We do have a big university here. We have an SEC school here. We have a lot of Greek life, so there are a lot of things that happen and a lot of things that get swept under the rug, sadly. And I did attend that big SEC school. I witnessed firsthand that Greek life and some of the things that go on there.
0: You already have made a difference, and you continue to do so every single day with the work that you're doing. And, you know, unfortunately, it takes so much time for states to truly change and institutions to truly change. I mean, you brought up a great point of college. I went to a Big Ten school, went to Rutgers. In my terms, it was rape central there. I knew so many girls who would just come up to me because of this podcast, who would share their stories saying, like, I was raped. The statistics are true. It's like one in four. College students are at the most vulnerable rates, ages 18 to 24, and it's truly heartbreaking because these institutions are lacking in what they do. For me, like, Greek life is a huge component of it. The way that, especially fraternities, are like, formulated, it's, like, all based on, like, power and control. They're taught to be on the top, drink excessively, and alcohol isn't a cause for domestic violence or sexual assault, but it can certainly exacerbate it. For sure. And just the way that they're taught and the morals that are put into the fraternities, it's like, it's disgusting.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I got the games of myself for dealing yeah. <laughs> with all these fraternities and yeah. boys because not everyone fits the standard, but it's like, how do you support this? How right. are you
1: sitting there with your frat brother raping me and you just stand by? And people think it's funny and it's cool. And if you do that, like you're the top dog. And it's such the wrong mentality. We as a generation, especially our generation, and those of us that are at the age where we're getting married and wanting to have kids of our own, we have to teach people that rape is not okay. And that, you know, being a boy doesn't entitle you to hurt other people just because you are stronger and you think that you are a superior gender we don't live in the 1900s anymore. This is not 1920 where you get to buy property in a wife and just do what you want to them. And something that I think is really going to change in the next few years, and I've even seen it as a sane nurse, is the amount of trans assault and same-sex assault. And that's going to become a lot more prevalent as our nation is growing towards being a lot more open and free about you know same-sex marriage and and trans like that's going to be a huge thing and that's going to change a lot of the way we do things even as say nurses but it's going to change the way we educate our kids but we got to be ready to do that and i think having the issues i have with my own parents they would never have educated their child about that if they had a son like they would not have ever had the mindset to say you know doing something to a girl if they say no is inappropriate you can't do that or if it's the same sex thing, it's the same thing. Just because you feel that you have power, it doesn't entitle you to hurt another person or not listen to them. There's a really great video. I hope you've seen it. Have you seen the tea consent video on YouTube? Yes. I love it. I use it on in everything you talk about. It's that simple. If you don't want a cup of tea, don't pour them a cup of tea. It's really not hard. But we've just made it something that is so much harder than... A cup of tea, really? So I encourage everybody to watch that video. I think it's very silly. I'm sure we all know that, but it's it really is a great example of consent and how we should be teaching children in schools and and the way we should be modeling ourselves. It is a simple
0: and silly video,
1: but I think it's because people make consent so
0: complicated when it's not. If I'm saying no, then it means no. You right. can't change my mind. You can't beg me to do something. And if you were to coerce me into like drinking that tea when I didn't want it, that's not consent.
1: Correct. Or if I'm asleep and you choose to pour me a cup of tea, I didn't say yes. me to drink it. I did it. that. Yes. <laughs> or
0: pour I it on said, my head. I
1: did or, Yeah. Or I said I want tea and now I don't want tea. It's okay to change your mind. Mid sip. I don't want this tea anymore. I don't want it anymore. No. Just take it. Away. I don't want it. it away. Um, right. Like I said, I use that video for all of my explanations. I showed it to my parents. I've showed it to plenty of friends, and most of them say, "Wow, I guess it really is that simple." I feel that all fraternities and sororities should be made to watch the tea consent video.
0: <laughs> I mean, but even if they watch it, there's still going to be people who don't get it. Yep. I've had people come up to me about one of my rapists and be like, he couldn't have raped you. He has a sister. Or he couldn't have raped me. We're like such good friends. And I'm a girl and he's never done anything to me. I'm like, that doesn't mean no. So?
1: <laughs> he probably has a mom and a grandma too. Like- yeah, I-,
0: <laughs> I can understand that rapists have families and have people who love them and people that they've never done anything wrong to, sure. but that doesn't mean that they were incapable of doing something wrong to me or something wrong sure. to someone else. And I think that's another big thing that people aren't understanding either is that how could they commit such a horrid act? Like I know them and they would never do it to me. Well, just cause they would never do it to you doesn't mean that they wouldn't do it to someone else. And even if they never go on to do it again, it doesn't mean that they, in that moment, were terrible and they ruined my life and my safety. So for you to go and say, well, he's never done it to me, so I don't believe you, that's, it's not okay. And you're just contributing to the problem.
1: Yeah. One of the hardest conversations I ever had with somebody actually was when my now deceased partner and I were getting out of our relationship. I had a really good relationship with his family. They lived a little ways away from where we live. And so we would take some weekend trips up to see them. And I got to be very close with them. I noticed that they also drank a lot. I mean, we would go through bottles of wine in a night with them. And so I recognized that there was a problem there. Yeah, of course. I didn't realize, yeah, how big the problem was necessarily. But the hardest conversation I ever had with anybody probably was when I called his mom and I said, your son did this to me. Your son broke my ribs. Your son gave me a concussion. Your son tried to kill me. Your son sexually assaulted me. And she said, well, he would never do that. I raised him. I raised him better than that. He would never do that. And I said, well, he did. I said, and I know that he was drunk while he did it. And I think that there's an alcohol problem going on here. I said, I know that you guys like to drink. I know that he likes to drink, but this is something that has to get taken care of. Mm -hmm. You need to be better. And his mom basically said, well, if you feel that way, it's probably best. You just never contact us again. And I said, that's fine. I don't want to be part of this anymore. I said, you know, I thought you cared about me as a person. And I was trying to let you know that your son is going down a path that is hurtful and probably going to land him in jail. You know, he's drunk driving to see you right now. Like he is intoxicated behind the wheel on the interstate. You need to do something about that. Or I will call law enforcement and report him as drunk driving. And she said, well, you wouldn't do that because you don't want to ruin his life. He's going to medical school. Well, he doesn't need to be a doctor. That's just the way I feel about it. You don't need to be a doctor if you can't even show up to class sober or you put your hands on another human being in a violent way. Like you don't deserve that. So I have no problem reporting him to law enforcement. Yeah. And she just said, Well, I raised him better than that. And he he wouldn't do that. He did. <laughs> yeah, <I'm laughs> there's there's nothing else to say. He did. Um, and I'm well, sorry I mean, that you think he raised a, a perfect child, but he messed up.
0: Parents are a big thing. I mean, I know I went to trial through my school with my second assault in college, and his mom was actually in the room in the trial. And she, like, read a statement about how her son went to like Boy Scouts and he was raised with honor. And I was like, look at these pictures of the blood that came out of me from your son and mm-hmm. try and tell me that that's honor right there. Yeah. Like, you can be in denial all you want. You can still love your son and admit that he did something wrong. But, like, don't come and try to take my experience away because he was a Boy Scout. hmm And, you know, I've had to do a lot of, like, forgiving to move forward. hmm I wanted to report with the police because my second rapist actually contacted my first rapist and wanted him to come to the trial to be a material witness against wow. me. And as soon as I got that witness list, I had, like, a mental breakdown. And luckily, Rutgers was like, no, that can't be done. Like, it only has to be relevant to this experience. But I was, like, sitting there, and I was just, like, the lengths that they will go, I had to forgive them both, though. My first rapist, he had beat me up, like, a month later at, like, a mutual friend's birthday party. I left the party with, like, bruises all up and down my body. And I, like, told people, like, what happened at that party And they're like, oh, it's fine. Just like go to bed. And, you know, there were parents at that party. Like, seriously, no one wants to do anything. So, I mean, I've had to forgive their parents. I've had to forgive them. And that's not for them. It's for me. And as hard as it is, I need to let go of them and everything about them so that I can move forward with my life.
1: And that's probably the hardest part. I think going to therapy and and doing the healing work. Sure. I mean, that's hard, but at the end of the day, when you walk away from this, the hardest part is saying, did you forgive that person? Can you walk forward in your life and say, this happened to me and I forgive that person. And for a long time, I couldn't. And there are probably still days (laughs) where I wake up and I'm like, yeah, no, you know, redacting my forgiveness, just can't do it today. The anger is still probably the thing that I deal with the most, especially having a rapist that killed themselves. That was really the point where I was like, really? Like, you took that way out? Like, now I'm just angry. Like, you can do it all, all you want. You can say all the bad things you want about me, but don't do that. And I'll never forget, he was dating another girl at the time that he committed suicide who had a small child. And she actually reached out to me after he did that. And she said, you know, he talked about you. And I was like, what, what are you talking about? Like, what does that mean? And she was like, well, he used to talk about you and like the relationship that you had and just some of the things that you went through. And I was like, so do you know about everything that happened? And she was like, I think we all know that he's an alcoholic and that he sometimes loses his temper. She said, thankfully, he was never physically abusive to me. But she said, I think the guilt and the resentment and the feelings just piled up on him and he couldn't handle being in a new relationship and he he just ended everything. And so for a long time, I was like, I can't forgive that person. You took the easy way out. You literally ruined somebody else's life and their small child's life by doing this in a relationship with them. And then you blamed me for it. Like, I can't forgive that. And that was really hard. And finally, I just realized, you know, she reached out to me for her own healing. She needed to tell me. She needed um,
0: someone to blame, essentially. Because she needed
1: someone to blame. I don't agree with what she did say. I don't agree with it either. Her no resentment. But, like- yeah. Yeah. You should resent it. There are still a lot of mixed feelings about it and anger. But at the end of the day, he's not here anymore. There's nothing I can do. So all I can do is forgive and not forget. But sometimes, like, I'll just get very anxious and kind of shut down. And my husband will say, What is wrong with you? And I'm like, well, we had a conflict. It was literally just the little conflict that you and I have that made me go back and be like, oh, the last time we had a conflict, I, you know, got strangled. Or, you know, I was assaulted. And that was just really triggering for me in that moment. And it had nothing to do with you or even anything that ever happened to me. But I'm tying all of that back together now. So That's, again, it's just part of the healing process, but forgiveness has been a huge thing in realizing that it's okay to be angry and it's okay to resent those people and have negative feelings towards them. You just don't let it run your life.
0: Yeah, it's a big thing and, you know, it's not for everyone. I won't sit here and preach and say, you need to forgive that person. You need to forgive those people, but I always preach, like, forgive yourself and that's not to say that you did
1: anything wrong in this situation, but Forgive yourself. Give yourself that grace. Mm-hmm. And being very intuitive to what your body and your mind needs. I've just known you for like an hour now, but I'm, <laughs> I'm really proud of the work that
0: you're doing and everything that you've accomplished despite everything that you've been through. I really do thank you for being here, and I think your story will be so helpful for anyone who's going through this, especially from the SANE nurse perspective, because you're out there in that field helping survivors every single day through one of the most traumatic
1: moments of their lives. So I really applaud you, and thank you for everything that you've done. Well, thank you. And thank you for sharing part of your story, because I know having these conversations, you sometimes like don't know whether you want to or whether you, you feel like you should. And again, it is it is hard. And, you know, I applaud you for starting a podcast because that does mean you talk about it a lot and you hear about other people's stories. That's also something that's really brave is being in the the spotlight and being able to, to say, I'm at a point where I can share my story and I can help others share their story. So I, I'm very thankful that there's a platform like this podcast that you are able to share and that we are all able to come on and share with you. Thank you.
0: Thank you. If you want to support Survivor Sisters or come on the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. To follow us on Instagram. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and YouTube. Sharing these stories becomes so important because, like our motto says, we will not be silenced, and by sharing these stories, we give power back to survivors so that they can have a voice in the society and hopefully we can unite together. Thank you to everyone who has supported us on this very long journey and throughout our hiatus. I hope to get back into interviewing survivors and having them have this space to share their story more regularly. And of course, with that being said, we will not be silenced.